Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD. Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Dara Elise Lyons. It's been a great two hours so far, and we're about to jump into another exciting conversation with Channing Joseph. Channing is an award-winning journalist, a writer, a speaker, a teacher, and according to Channing's website, the proud descendant of the enslaved people who built America and gave it soul. And there is a really moving story about that that we're going to get into um, in this next hour. But Channing, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, oops, came in muted. Let's <laughs> let's try it again. Welcome. Uh, Welcome again. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I want to just jump right in. And how did you get into the work that you do? And what's your why? How did I get into the work that I do? Um, maybe the second part of the, the question is a little easier to as an entry point. Yeah. Um, my why is... Um, that I feel I can have some small impact on, um, you know, in this chaotic world mm-hmm. you know, that seems to be falling apart most of the time. Yeah. I can use uh, my uh, the, the leverage that I have and the influence that I have um, to either in the classroom to plant to plant a seed in young minds to. Um, who will, who will become influential leaders in their own ways um, or to through my uh, writing and publishing to get people to think about things differently or to learn about uh, things that they haven't heard before. So that's my why. Yeah. Um, how I got, how I got in, into it is maybe a longer story. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're welcome to share that story or not. But I know that, you know, one of the things that you write about are largely obscured histories, specifically mm-hmm. queer histories. And I and I think that, you know, it's important for those histories, those experiences to be brought forward. I've heard you say that, um, you know, a family tree is basically a record of heterosexual behavior and that like you're often trying to tell stories that are not necessarily easy to find or to identify. Absolutely. Uh, When you think about you're right. When you think about the family tree, you're looking at um, usually a diagram that shows um, um, male, female and then their child. Yes. In, a, in a sort of cascading uh, tree format. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that um, particular, it's useful, but within that particular way of looking at the family, um, it's not so clear where a queer person mm-hmm. would would fit or where their queerness would, would show itself mm-hmm. in the tree. So um, I just got interested... Um, I was quite a long time ago really interested in, in uh, exploring my own family history. Uh, I was I was really obsessed with it. I actually um, I was on an ancestry commercial. If some people might remember that, it's <laughs> my face for that because I was uh, I was really um, it was really um, important for me to learn about my family history and what my ancestors had been through um, during slavery, as you said, and during uh, other other important eras in, in American history. 
And the, the more I got into that, the more I learned about that through the family tree, through, ah, my great-grandmother did this and she lived here yeah. and she married my great-grandfather and they did this and they lived at this particular time during this presidency and during this form of um, oppression, right? Mm. Um, and the more I thought about that, the more I just, you know, the, the question rose within me, where would... Um, what, what, what were the experiences of queer people who were living at these various times, whether during slavery, whether during um, Reconstruction, um, the lynching era, mm. um, other other eras in, in American history? What was the queer experience, particularly the black queer experience? Yeah. Um, it wasn't, you know, when I started on working on, on uh, research around uh, that topic, the topic of black queer history, and queer history in general, um, there was much less work than there is now, and there and there still is a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Um, so, um, I I just asked myself, you know, what what would that look like? And I became obsessed just just trying to learn as much as I could about um, what were some what was the what's the evidence that exists for you know queer existence in in the slavery era. Um, particularly among enslaved people. What's the evidence for it? What are their, what are the potential sources of information? And, um, and that just led me on a long, long journey. Um, but it was just a, a lot of time spent in the archives and a lot of time spent, um, um, because I'm a journalist sorting through newspaper records, um, and, um, trying to sort of see, a lot of it starts with glimpses of sort of, you know, uh, the, the newspaper will say so-and-so was arrested for dressing as a woman or was, was, uh, was arrested for, for wearing female attire, as they might say, much then. Um, and, um, I thought, okay, that's interesting. That's a glimpse. Who is this person? Can I find out more about whoever this person was? Um, and who else did they know and what else were they doing? Um, so yeah, I think, I think, um, I didn't really know I was involved in, in queer history research for a long time. I thought, you know, I thought I was just, uh, I thought I was just obsessively collecting, <laughs> um, news, newspaper, old newspaper articles, because I was actually certain that some, some academic somewhere must be specializing in this mm. and that I, um, just needed to find out who it was. <laughs> and um, at that time, there were very few, actually, almost nobody. Um, it's like 20 plus years ago. Um, and um, and uh, at a certain point, I would say, I think it was 2015. Yeah. Um, I basically, I basically, um, had the chance to speak to a number of historians and I, and people who special people who specialize in queer history. Right. Um, and I asked them about, you know, do you know, did you know about these particular, um, formerly enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved community who was doing drag in Washington, DC in the 1880s. And of course I thought they would say, okay, yeah, of course there's, there's tons of books written about that. And, uh, there were not, <laughs> there, there were not. Um, and it made me realize, Oh, 
Um, not only isn't it being done, but apparently I'm doing important work that that, um, <laughs> that maybe I should continue to do. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, there's so many things that came up in what you shared. And I'm thinking about kind of how um, black stories during that time were largely obscured, right? Or or told by other people. Like there was an effort to eradicate stories and culture and community. And then also you take the intersectionality layered on top of that of queer stories and, and mm-hmm. queer histories. And and mm-hmm. so I'm curious, like when you're finding this source material material, mm-hmm. when you're finding these stories, are they largely told in the voices of other people? Like these news articles, how much are you finding people's individual narratives or family narratives and whatnot um it's rare to be honest but uh but it's a complicated picture yeah um let me see what i can say right now about this um so um i would say at this point in time right um the number of of documented consensual same-sex relationships Mm. between enslaved people um is probably you could list them all yeah in in a in a a moderately moderate length conversation um um and of course there's, there's a range about you know what what is known about all the various different folks uh that you might mention but um some of those uh, relationships exist or are documented in in letters. Um, so, for example, one one um, relationship is documented in um, the letters of uh, a former um, a former Confederate um, um, vice president, Alexander Stevens. Really? And, okay. And his and his former and his at the time his his enslaved servant. Mm. Um, um, so there, and, and various members of that community. So that's kind of, kind of a family story or families, uh, but, but they are, um, sort of the tone of, of the letters, um, is, um, um, essentially it's various friends of, 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 of Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. This is before he was the vice president of the Confederacy. This is maybe in the 1850s. Okay. Um, and uh, the the letters are sort of saying, you know, did you know that your that your your boy, your inside man, uh, actually he was a boy. Yeah. Uh, did you know that your boy Pierce is uh, sleeping with this other 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 slave? Oh, wow. um, that they've been sleeping together every night. Did you know about that? And one one of the one of the letters is like outraged. Like, how, what are you going to do about this? You 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 let this boy come to his ruin. Uh, um, and so um, it surprises me that nobody <laughs> that people haven't found that or written about it. Yeah. But um, in the past, but it's but it's also like uh, the the kind of people who are interested in Confederate history, right? Mm tend not to be interested in the queer parts. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating to me, like how stories start to shift and change when queer narratives or uh, or underrepresentative narratives of any sort sort of are brought to the forefront. They It adds a dimensionality of texture and nuance and, um, you know, like 
yeah, because my brain would very much not associate anything having to do with the Confederacy with queer history or experience. And I think there's probably most people would feel the same. And that's part of the exciting and interesting thing about um, about doing historical research is that you realize there is an overarching narrative about who we are and what America yeah. is and so on that we all get. And it's, it's more patriotism and jingoism than it is really facts. Yes. Um, um, but then the facts that we get are very, very um, uh, curated, right? In order to fit within the narrative of American greatness and exceptionalism. Um, and um, I always say, when you know the when you know what really happened, you realize, oh, like this is why certain things in in, in the past don't quite make sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> or why they seem sort of just floating. Like these events, this event happened, and that event happened, and, and there doesn't seem to be a, a connection between the two. If you remember in, in in history history courses in the past, like thinking, you know, this is a series of events li- being listed, and I'm not sure the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because of this effort to um um to keep out the things that that would be uncomfortable to talk about yeah, yeah. so um for example um there was uh in you know this is right after the civil war which you know the civil war as you know was 1861 to 1865 yeah. um hundreds of thousands of people were killed or injured um and it was a tremendous people of American society that continued really after the war. Yeah. And um, in 1866, there was a riot in the city of Memphis in which um, angry uh, white mobs attacked black people, burned houses, mm. um, sexually assaulted women, and so, so on. And um, one of the women who was sexually assaulted was named Frances Thompson. And Frances Thompson was... Um, uh, Basically, she had been enslaved and she she uh, was one of the first, if not the first person, uh, formerly enslaved person or black person to testify before a congressional committee. Mm. And she told this congressional committee about herself. Um, And that testimony helped to galvanize support among uh, the Republicans, the radical Republicans at that time Mm. to put forth legislation around reconstruction Mm. so that. Black people could have the protection of the U.S. federal government against, um, you know, uh, white mobs across the country who were um, kind of trying to kill them, hurt them, disenfranchise them. Um, so Francis Thompson is crucial to the beginning of Reconstruction in this way. Yeah. And then you sort of uh, fast forward 10 years and Francis Thompson again comes into the news in 1876 and this is just before the end of Reconstruction, actually. Mm. And there's a reason she comes into the news. She comes into the news because she is arrested and accused of being a man. Now, Frances Thompson had been assigned male at birth. Mm. So the police arrested her. They forced her to uh, undress, undergo a medical examination right. of her genitalia. Now, again, this is a woman who'd been um, sexually assaulted yes. and has a full Congress about that. Yeah. So this is another sexual assault, essentially, of her by the police. Yeah. And um, 
news about this spread across the country, um, calling Frances Thompson a fraud, questioning her testimony before before Congress ten years before, and the story about this fraudulent um, sort of uh, mouthpiece for the radical Republican agenda, right, mm. began to be a, a tool used to unravel Reconstruction. Wow. So this woman assigned male at birth before the word trans existed. Yes. Um, um, so it's inter- it's also important to speak carefully because um, you can't say trans identified because transgender didn't exist at that right. time. But yeah. um, you can say that uh, Frances Thompson was um, a person assigned male at birth who lived as a woman. Yes. In the in the 1860s. Um, so um, she is central to this. You can say also some, you know, some academics use words like transadjacent. Yeah. Um, or, or I like to use the phrase uh, transgender ancestor. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it suggests not somebody who is transgender, but somebody who is an ancestor to tra- transgender identity. Mm. Um, somebody who uh, helps to form the modern uh, identity, uh, modern concepts of, of transgender uh, uh, identity. And this works for you know, you can call you can have a gay ancestor, a bi ancestor, right, and so yeah, on. Yeah. But um, um, particularly helpful, I think, just to just try and put ourselves in the frame of mind of the people of the of people at the time, rather than imposing our identity, current sort of notions and concepts on people of the past. But anyway, my point about telling that story is that Frances Thompson is not talked about at all, let alone talked about. Uh, as central to the the formation and the unraveling of this important historical era, wow. right, yeah. uh, of Reconstruction. And so now that you know about it, why would you ever teach or talk about Reconstruction without mentioning Francis Thompson? And yet, so many, so many um, scholars and so many, particularly students, um, both both history students in universities and um, and uh, K through twelve students. Uh, uh, have a history that is essentially um, gutted, yeah. gutted of so much important nuance and and really facts, right? That distort who we are, right? Because all of the queerest parts of ourselves, particularly all the blackest queerest parts of yeah. ourselves, um, as a country, have been are skipped over. Yes, yes, um, and. It is a, uh, you know, it deprives us all, but particularly if you're, um, if you're someone living on the margin, someone who's craving images of yourself, someone who's, who's in need of some kind of, um, encouragement that who you are is not, there's nothing, that there's nothing wrong with who you are. As many, as many young queer people feel growing up, right? Um, you can see if, if you had an opportunity to see people having similar experiences to you throughout history. And that makes history so much more interesting, right? To, yes. I think to everyone, but particularly it makes history and the discussion of history and the learning of history a more healing mm. um, and a more, um, you know, because otherwise it feels like we're being gas gaslighted, right? Yes. Like yes. it feels like, okay, so all this time there was nobody like me and or nobody like me who did anything significant. It's, it's the implication, right? 
You're listening to Word Radio. I'm your guest host for Evening Words, Dara Elise Lyons. This is a conversation with Channing Joseph, an award-winning journalist, writer, speaker, and teacher who specifically writes a lot about queer Black histories and obscured histories um, and obscured stories as a journalist. And Channing, I'm curious, you know, I think for someone who's like, yeah, okay, it's important for those stories to be told. It would have been important for those stories to be told at that time. And what's the relevance today? You know, there's a lot of people who still don't necessarily always uh, see themselves uh, reflected in history or see the relevance of history in the present moment. So kind of like for you, what is what is the relevance? Well, uh, you know, this is a this is a black uh, radio station. And yes. I would hope that that black folks can at least make the make the jump. Right. Like mm-hmm. if, if you're a straight black person, it's a gender straight black person. Um, and you recognize the importance of black history. There's a black history month. It's the shortest month. Okay. Uh, that, that part, that part we don't like, but um, we understand the importance of, of black history and the importance mm-hmm. of recognizing it for our own, um, not only education and the education of, of, of the rest of our, uh, our fellow citizens, but also for our own spiritual sort of the, the spiritual value of it. Mm. Black people help build this nation yeah. and, Take a take a month to say, here's the black people. Here's, here's a month to talk about mm-hmm. the black people that that influence in both this nation. It's not enough, yeah, right. But at least it's it's better than not having it, right? right. And and I and I say that if you can if you can understand that, then it's really the same idea. Mm-hmm. If there is no time to speak about, we have we have, we, have, we have Pride Month now, right? Yeah, Pride Month is not necessarily about history. Right. Um, it's more about celebration. Um, <laughs> but um, so we can talk about that as maybe a separate topic. But for the same reason that black history is important, uh, poor history is important. Yeah. That, um, that it's history that, that is not taught, is not known. And without it, we get a distorted view of what really happened. Just as without Francis Thompson, we get a distorted yeah. view of what happened in Reconstruction. And of course, it's, it's, it's similar with other eras, civil rights, you know, yeah. often we don't we don't have any discussion about um, um, Maya Rustin and mm. uh, his work to, you know, to organize the, the, the March on Washington. Right. Yeah. Um, as a as a black gay man. Right. Um, there's no, I don't want to sort of uh, hop on hop on the, the or, 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 or go go on too much on specific examples if you want i can no but um i think that uh it's just yeah it's it's without talking about those those specific those particular instances we 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 miss out on a lot of the bigger picture and and the history is distorted yeah i agree i think one of the things that i that i really appreciate about some of your writing that i've read um is that you will often use the word we you'll often like locate yourself in the history and i think that's part of what i was maybe trying to get at not skillfully with my question but like this idea this idea of like no not at all i'm so you're you answered the exact question i asked and also i want to add add to that like there's a way that you talk about history that is very present tense, like where you're actually in it, where you'll talk about like we or us, you know, even when you're talking about something that happened a hundred years ago. And I'm kind of curious about that. Okay. It is a specific choice. Yeah. And it is an, it is a very, um, it's a choice that 
goes against all of my journalistic training. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and I'm fine with that because I think, um, um, you know, I worked for many years as an editor at the, uh, at the New York times and, and at the Associated Press and, um, every day obsessing about the grammar rules and syntax and what's the, what's the, what's the value of this particular word here? Is there there another word that works better? And so I became just immersed in that. And so having had that experience, I, I just, it's, it's very clear to me that the words we use, um, can have important, it goes, it goes without saying, you understand that yes. the words we use have an important impact. Um, and I mean that in a specific way. If I say black people, such and such, black people, um, 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 uh, I say sort of, sort of after, if I say after the civil war, mm. um, African Americans underwent a tremendous um, um, upheaval in, in American society, right? Um, okay, that's that's one way of saying it, and it's not false, right? right. But if I say we underwent a tremendous upheaval, mm-hmm. um, or experienced a tremendous upheaval, right? Um, it makes it more, as you say, more present. Mm-hmm. Um, and it identifies that I, it's not some other. I don't want to, I, I, I want to indicate that I don't see the people of the past as some other than me, that I feel and am connected to them. I appreciate that. You're listening to Word Radio on 900 AM, 96.1 FM, streaming live on wordradio.com, Facebook Live, and the Word Radio app. I'm Dara Elise Lyons speaking with Channing Joseph, an award-winning journalist, writer, speaker, and teacher. If you have a question for Channing, you're welcome to call us at 215-634-8065. Again, 215-634-8065. We're going to take a very quick break. Um, and then be back with more. I want to speak specifically about some stories that Channing um, has investigated in depth that are really fascinating and beautiful. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Dara Elise Lyons, in conversation with Channing Joseph, an award-winning journalist, writer, speaker, and teacher. And, you know, Channing, before the break, we were speaking a bit about your own research into your personal ancestry, your personal history. And I, I think few of us, I mean, I, I I can trace back maybe one generation and then and then that's where the buck stops. Um, but I know that you have a story about your fifth great grandfather um, and that you mm-hmm. display a record on your bookshelf that reminds you of that story. And so I'm wondering if you can maybe tell that story and what you discovered about your own family lineage and how that's impacted you. That's, I really appreciate that question. Um, it's not something that I get to talk about often. Um, yes, I, so my family's from Louisiana and, and, um, um, I learned that we go back to Louisiana, uh, way back. Um, even further back than I was able to trace. Um, and when I was really, when I was, uh, at a certain point, I was, in my early twenties, mm-hmm. um, 
and now I'm in my early forties. <laughs> so this is quite a while ago. But I was I was um I was obsessively trying to learn about my family tree and the people of my family in the past. And part of it was to try and understand what they experienced, um, you know, to sort of piece together and make sense of some of the stories my great grandmother had told me when I was a kid mm. um, about the KKK in town and, uh, you know, being on the, the police force and, um, and growing up through the great depression and, um, and, um, you know, our family cemetery, mm. uh, the family cemetery where, where many of my are buried. Some of, some of the graves go back to the 1700s. Yeah. So I've always just known that there's some history there that is, I needed to understand and, I, and no one in, alive in my family could, could really explain it. So I became obsessed with that. And, and, um, I was startled to discover, uh, in this research, um, several, records of um slave sales mm. you know a pur- purchase purchase records of um of uh, one person buying uh another person mm. from a from a third party right um and um the, the records didn't explain themselves some of the, they, they just sort of they gave you the date when this thing happened and there was a lot of legal language yeah um but this one particular person, my fifth great grandfather, um, his name was Narcisse Milan, and uh, he um, had been enslaved in Louisiana, in the, mostly in Saint Tammany Parish, which is a, a, one of the parishes or something like a county yeah. um, near near New Orleans. And he had been a, a sailor and um, a skilled woodworker. Um, had built boats, um, um, and later in his life, he, uh, stopped doing that. But anyway, so the, the, um, the records I was finding was, was basically were saying that Narcisse Milan, my ancestor, was purchasing various people. And I thought, I just took a deep breath and I said, Oh, okay. What is this? Why, why, why is this black man purchasing other black people? Mm. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I knew that there, I knew that there were cases of, of, of black people enslaving one another. Mm. Um, some of us don't learn about that. If, if we learn about it, we just learn about it in theory. We don't see specific examples of it, let alone specific examples in their own family. Right. Um, but, um, in this case, R.C. Smilon was buying, um, there was a record of him buying a young girl named Josephine and another, Mm. another uh another child uh you know very various different people and, and, I, and I, i'm trying to put it together and trying to figure out is there some kind of reason for all of these purchases yeah. then i find this record of an auction and the auction is in 1843 i believe i i always forget whether it's 43 or 42 according to your website it's 1843 so yeah okay you're correcting me so um uh there was an auction in i believe july 1843 so this is hot louisiana uh july uh at the courthouse and there's um this uh prominent woman of of the parish uh madame jesus had died and she left her estate um and her estate was being auctioned off to other members of the community. Yeah. 
and uh, everyone had gathered at the courthouse to participate in this auction. And um, the, this auction record was a record of the things that were being sold. So she had her furniture, she had, uh, you know, um, uh, her armoire, her <laughs> various livestock, horses, cattle that were being auctioned. And amidst all the furniture and livestock being auctioned were human beings being auctioned. Mm. And, um, and the, the, uh, several of the members, several of the people that were being auctioned were, uh, it turned out, uh, the sons of Narcisse Nilal. Wow. And I thought, ah, so this isn't, this isn't some depraved, property seeking early capitalist kind of um assimilationist story this is a story of a man who had been enslaved Mm. who had worked his way out of uh of slavery that that story is a little bit obscure yeah but in his older life he probably had amassed a a sum of money and was using it in order to purchase members of his own family Mm. because in 1843, there is no way that anyone could have known that slavery would ever end. Right. So everyone was working with the, with the assumption that this is not gonna, ever going to end. I have to, I have to make sure that I that I get my family out wow. now that I can. And this story of him, with the help of his wife Catherine, um, um. You know, he had been a boat builder and, and, and later in his life he was making barrels. Barrels were very important. Okay. So a barrel worker, a cooper, yeah. um, um, allowed him apparently to save the money to, and with the help of other, other relatives to, to buy various members of his family, particularly his children. Mm-hmm. And this particular auction sort of finally sort of allowed me to, Put the pieces together, um, and you know, I imagine it. You know, this this hot, sweltering July in Louisiana in 1843, and you're the only black man in a community of people who are bidding to mm. purchase yeah. your children. And if they if they win, if they if they get them, what will happen? Where will they go? Yeah, wow. Who will they sell them to? Mm. Um. And just the, uh, I can try and stop myself from crying just to think about it. But, but basically, I thought to myself, on the one hand, I wish that my family had passed this story on mm. because there, there are, you know, uh, you know, it's, um, it would have been very meaningful for me to grow up knowing uh, I come from a family who, family who, you know, from a line of ancestors who valued, who valued community, who valued family, who were loving, who protected one another as best they could in this terrible environment, right? Mm. Um, I would have loved growing up learning that. But I also understand the pain of having to talk about that, right. let alone just talk about that to your children. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so... I, I forgive them for not passing it down, but I, it, it would have been it would have been great to, to know about. It. And um, and so I just thought, 
particularly after learning that, I thought, you know, this is um, learning one's own family history can be such a spiritually healing. Because mm. learning that was very spiritually healing for me to go from thinking that they were, you know, that this this man was was simply trying to uh, gain a profit in slaves to learning that he was on a campaign to free his loved ones. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's was a tremendously healing experience for me to know, okay, not only um, do I come from this, but like it makes me, it gives me a direct connection to mm. to slavery in a way that I think a lot of, a lot of black people, you know, we, we know that we're from, come from slavery and it's kind of an abstraction. It is. Yeah. Um, and to, to have the, the specifics of it, mm. to know the specifics of it are really, they changed completely how you think about it yeah right because and it means and that's the part of why i use the we in my in, yes. my, in my writing right yeah. i think it's not that it happened to them it happened to us it happened to us right right um so so that particular story was important and and it sort of sort of emphasizes why it's how i think about you know, writing queer history is similar, right? Mm. Because it, it can be so healing to learn about your connection to to go from essentially growing up in Louisiana, yeah. and learning that you're from slavery, and kind of being ashamed about it, and not wanting to talk about it, and mm. not and feeling like, yeah, want to just sort of. Right. I know, and you had so many relatives who who bragged about how our ancestors came from France. Mm. Right? and they do (laughs) some of them do but um to be able to brag about you know that my my ancestors uh you know um looked out for each other and protected each other during during slavery wow yeah that's that's different and it it goes from i went from being kind of ashamed and Mm -hmm. kind of vaguely Vaguely not wanting to talk about my connection to that past to being really tremendously proud. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I know that, you know, as you pointed out, and as I know from my own experience, not everyone is going to have access to those stories within themselves. And also that you're telling stories about others. And I wanted to maybe pivot and talk a little bit about William Dorsey Swan, because I know that that is a story that you are are telling um, and 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 bringing forward. So can you just give like a brief overview of who William Dorsey Swan is? What? William Dorsey Swan yeah. is um, the first known drag queen in the world. He's the person who created or, or, or that generated the idea of a drag queen. Um, and uh, he lived in the uh, middle, from the middle of the 1800s to the early 20th century. Hmm. Um, so that's 1860s to 1920s and uh was the leader of a what i call a queer underground in the nation's capital in washington dc um and was organizing drag balls uh, and getting arrested and organizing them again and and, uh, (laughs) um and uh uh, it was an amazing uh time to be to be black and to be queer, to be, to be uh, living at this time when um, 
in Washington D.C., Washington was like the place to be in the um, in the you know middle 19th century because uh, it was a place of opportunity for Black people uh, after the Civil War. Yeah, it was where everybody wanted to go. It was it was you know if you you if you could either get a government appointment or you could work for somebody with with a you know work for a, a powerful white person um, in government then. Um, those were where those are where the sort of opportunities lay. Mm. That was how it was seen. And also during the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln had, you know, um, declared beginning in 1862 before the Emancipation Proclamation right. went into effect. Washington D.C. was was the um, from April 1862. Um, if you could get, if you could escape from your from your enslaver and get into Washington D.C., you would have the protection of the of the federal government to to be free. Mm-hmm. So um, Washington was considered a place to be to to gain your freedom and to to have um, the opportunity for to for advancement either educationally or career wise, economically, and so on. And that's one of the reasons William Dorsey Swan came to Washington D.C. He was born in Northern Maryland. Um, to in an enslaved family, hmm. and um, when he was a young young man, came to Washington D.C. to seek economic opportunity and to help uh, help send money back up, up upstate to his family, uh, his mom and dad, and his many siblings. Hmm. And in Washington D.C., um, he suddenly came into contact from this rural town into this into the much bigger city. There were Many other men like himself who were experiencing same-sex attraction yeah. at a time when there were very few words that would have been known to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people did not use the term "gay" at that time to, to describe homo- same-sex attraction. Yeah, they didn't use the term "homosexual." The mm-hmm. word "homosexual" was a German medical term. Right. <laughs> that, <laughs> um, um, but you know, it's interesting because people 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 don't sort of just don't realize the level of you know. Um, there were medical researchers talking about homosexuality yeah. and, and what they called inversion mm. and what they sometimes called psychical hermaphroditism or moral hermaphroditism. And they had various different yeah. strange phrases getting at this idea that if you were attracted to a member of your own sex, either you you have your sex, your reproductive instinct is what they called it, mm. was inverted. Oh, that's interesting. Sex, yeah. Or you, your psyche, your 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 uh, your your mind contained male and female elements. So this idea of psychical or psychological mm. hermaphroditism that you had a hermaphrodite, of course, is an animal that has both male right. and female genitalia. So if you were a psychical hermaphrodite, then you were. Uh, your mind contained both male and female parts. And that was the, as a way of getting at this idea of why would a person be attracted to members of their own sex? And all of that to say that um, in the 1880s, 1890s, when Swan was active and holding drag balls, nobody was talking about inversion yeah. and classical hermaphroditism among enslaved people. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, so, 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 you know, what do you call yourself? Mm. And in Washington, D.C., it was particularly important because, you know, um, this idea of 
freedom, which I talked about earlier as being associated with Washington, D.C., the formerly enslaved people of Washington, D.C. celebrated their freedom with Emancipation Day, and there was a huge parade, and there was a huge sort of, um, it was a big deal at that time yeah. to celebrate one's uh, connection to emancipation. And um, a lot of optimism about what was possible mm-hmm. now that slavery was over. If you can imagine being optimistic in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> there was a lot of optimism because, wow, what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, slavery ended. And so they celebrated through this idea of a goddess of liberty or a, what was also called a queen of freedom. Mm. And, and these queens of freedom, particularly present at the, the Emancipation Day Parade, uh, were these were black women. Black women usually assigned female at birth, yeah. you know, sisters of black women, who would wear crowns, who would be covered in white, who would who would be uh, uh, taken down down Pennsylvania Avenue on um, on these flower covered floats, and they symbolize mm-hmm. this idea of the personification of black freedom. And so this idea of a queen was super important mm. in uh, Washington, D.C.'s black community at that time. So Swan adopts this idea of that he is a queen. Okay, yeah. And he is a queen, not of the Emancipation Day Parade, but he is a queen of the drag party. Oh, <laughs> and um, and so particularly at a time when there's no, there's no uh, understanding or of, there's no vocabulary to talk about identity in the way that we're so comfortable with talking about now. To claim a word for yourself, to claim queen yeah. for yourself, is uh, was significant. Significant. One of the first positive terms we have for you know what um, for that queer people had to talk about themselves. Right. So um, so that's William Morris one. William Morris one, the first drag queen, the first person to claim queendom. Mm. In a in a world where there was no concept of of really what what was going on with same sex attraction and gender gender nonconformity at that time, yeah. um, I am so fascinated. I wish we didn't have to take a break, and we do have to take a super <laughs> brief break. Um, but I'm going to be right back with more questions. So please uh, stick with us. Keep on listening. This is a conversation with Channing Joseph. I'm learning so much, and we're going to be right back. You're listening to Evening Words on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media. Welcome back to Evening Words. I'm your guest host, Daryl Lyons, in conversation with Channing Joseph, an award-winning journalist, writer, speaker, and teacher who has been bringing history to life for the last hour. Um, Channing, I want to talk about your TEDx talk, how Black queer culture shaped history. I know some of the stories that you've given tonight um, have given me an insight into that, how Black queer culture shaped history, but I'd love for you to speak a little more about that talk in particular and kind of what the take-home message was from that. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, it was a TED Talk. Uh, it was at the uh, the Vancouver TED Conference uh, mm-hmm. last year. And um, so I guess one way to support me <laughs> would be to go check, it, check out the TED Talk online because uh, it's it's short. It's a short TED Talk. Mm-hmm. It's eight minutes. Um, and every, um, every review, you know, Makes my day, so it ticks up. That's, I think it's, I think it's 1.5 million or something like that. So every 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 uh, every view 
helps a little bit. Yeah. And um, but it was a it's a it was a great experience to be at the TED conference and to um, to share the talk. Um, you know, there there are, I think there should be more uh, talks about queer topics. Yeah. Um, the, the the TED conference is, has been good about more topics having to do with race. Um, but uh, I think there is a lot more work to be done around queer, um, queer talks. Um, I, I was one of the few, um, talks on doing on a queer topic, mm. but I, I just firmly believe, you know, the, the title of the talk, as you said, is how black queer history, how black queer culture shaped history. <laughs> and, um, you can just Google that and find the talk, but it is, um, I firmly believe that in order to talk about American history, you need to include black queer culture. Mm-hmm. And in, if I could give a short summary of what I talked about in the talk, which is eight minutes, yeah. I talked about, um, Bayard Rustin and his work in the, um, civil rights movement in the 1960s to, to organize the March on Washington, uh, as a black gay man. I talked about, uh, Francis Thompson, who I've talked yeah. about today on the, uh, on the interview, um, uh, and, and her essential, uh, influence and, uh, impact on reconstruction. Uh, I talk about, um, William Dorsey Swan mm-hmm. and the creation of, of modern day drag culture and, uh, uh, Swan's influence on our whole concept of, of LGBTQ identity and, uh, and how we celebrate and how we celebrate each other, um, through, through a kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, self celebration, uh, kind of, uh, self proclaimed monarchy. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, so uh, just check out, check out that talk and, uh, that's the best I can do for to summarize in eight minutes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, folks should <laughs> check out that talk. I'm, I've watched it, I think, three times now. And every time I, okay. I get another take takeaway message, it's really, really powerful and really impactful. And again, it's how black queer culture shaped history. This is Channing Joseph. So you can Google that and it, it should come come right up. Um, and Channing, how else can folks support your work, get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing? Well, I would just, uh, at this time, I would just say, um, you know, Google me. I, I have a book that's coming out hopefully soon. So just uh, you should bookmark that in your brain that there's a, <laughs> there's a book coming out that has to do with uh, Blackboard history and, and William Dorsey Swan in it and delving into a lot of the topics that we discussed today, particularly around the. Uh, um, uh, you know, the experiences of enslaved people who were queer um, and um, and what it was like to be black and black and queer in the 19th century. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really rich conversation. Once again, I'm Dara Elise Lyons. This has been Evening Words. And thank you so much, Channing. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 